Hey everyone, it is Matt, the public servant who still remembers who he works for, which is you. I wanted to share something with you today, which are the details of a report that I filed with the Office of the Public Service Integrity Commissioner, because I think it's a matter of significant public interest. I hope that you find videos like this valuable. Because for those unaware, I have been the target of workplace harassment as a result of certain videos I've posted. And so I am taking on personal risk by posting things that highlight government conduct. I haven't actually done anything wrong, mind you, but this doesn't seem to dissuade my employer from targeting me and threatening my livelihood. I make videos like this because I believe it is my duty as a public servant to serve the public interest. I know that's a novel concept and not simply to do what I'd like to do and tell you that it's for your own good. You'll see my eyes dart back and forth from the camera because I will be reading most of this from respective documents that you might see on the actual screen if you're watching it. Um, so my apologies to any of you who really enjoy my eyes being locked on you the whole time. Uh, for those listening to this without video, uh, I will have these documents on screen uh, if you'd like to peruse them and examine them at your discretion. Uh, I know that federal employees weren't the only ones that had to suffer the consequences of such policies, but this policy is the one that I was subjected to. Something worthy of consideration would be how much appetite there would have been uh, for other institutions, both public and private, for such policies if this one did not exist. Essentially, citizens can attribute some amount of blame for this policy uh, in legitimizing the imposition of such measures in their respective workplace because their employer can simply state they were following the lead of an existing government policy. I think that most people are still unaware of exactly how much damage these policies have done to our country and to individual lives. The media seems unwilling to give a voice to those who have literally lost everything because of these mandates um, and having, having uh, that suffering on display for everyone to see um, would make these uh, realities far more prescient in the minds of those who think that these mandates make sense or that they are legitimate. Uh, for those unaware, the Office of the Public Service Integrity Commissioner is an entity specifically designed uh, for people to act as whistleblowers. That is, for public servants to contact them and regard uh, and report a potential wrongdoing. And they guarantee that you will be protected from reprisal and that your submission will remain private. As per their website, they believe that whistleblowing is important because to correct a wrongdoing is to preserve integrity and trust in the federal public sector. I couldn't agree more. I would like to share my disclosure with you and then provide you with their response. And I will only do a minor elaboration on it to keep it as brief as possible and permit you to reach your own conclusions about what to make of it. My original submission, just for transparency's sake, was done submitted using a web-based form, so I don't have a copy of uh, that particular document containing it, uh, but I copied what I wrote in their form, and I pasted it into a Word document um, so that I would have a record of it. In both documents, I have redacted my personal address, as well as the names of anyone else mentioned for their protection and privacy.
That isn't the purpose of this episode, uh, but rather is to share my submission with you and to provide some insight into how such a process may conclude. Their response was originally classified as protected B, but it is no longer a protected document due to my redactions. Only my name remains, and it is mine to divulge at my discretion. A reminder to anyone out there that believes themselves to be in a position to punish me for submitting such a report, I'll remind you that reprisal for such a submission is prohibited under Section 19 of the Act, just in case any petulant ones among you simply cannot fight the urge to attack a dedicated public servant. Attempts may still be made in secret behind closed doors, and there's nothing I can do about that. I only hope that the mental gymnastics that you engage in to rationalize your conduct may permit you to sleep well at night. I haven't slept well in months, but that's because there are wolves at my gate, not because I have betrayed myself or my ethics. My conscience is clear. Uh, however, I doubt the same can be said for others. Here is my submission. So I will read it and there'll be a copy of it up on the video. So at the top, I just wrote um, the actual, um, you know, details that they request. You know, it's basically who, what, when, where, what are the specific allegations, um, any other types of information like acts and regulations that you feel you want to contribute to support your disclosure. And so here is my disclosure. And I quote, it is difficult to pinpoint one person as committing the wrongdoing, as every single federal agency appears to have wholly accepted and implemented the policy on COVID-19 vaccination for the core public administration, including the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that was engineered by Prime Minister Trudeau. That being said, within my own agency, I was placed on unpaid administrative leave by my employer, who gave me a letter indicating it was according to the provisions of this policy, due to my failure to attest my vaccination status. My agency is not alone in the gross mismanagement of public sector employees that has occurred as a result of this policy. And it has been alleged that a high-level executive in my agency has made statements effectively admitting that this policy isn't designed, nor was it intended to contribute to workplace health and safety. Rather, it was devised by the Prime Minister to increase vaccination rates, which, on its own, should be deemed concerning enough to warrant an investigation simply to determine if this is indeed accurate. This isn't a legitimate foundation upon which to build a policy, and I intend on outlining why. My specific allegations are, the first one is, my executives were aware that this policy does not constitute a legitimate or legal policy, but they nevertheless implemented it, placing a significant number of people in financial jeopardy or to be coerced into making a medical decision while under duress. The second is that I possessed valid arguments and concerns associated with my personal situation, but I was never given an opportunity to raise them. This shows contempt for me 
as an employee and a complete failure to ensure that workplace decisions are informed by jurisprudence and remain consistent with existing acts of parliament, which all supersede this policy. And the third is the office of the prime minister engineered a policy that was clearly in contravention of various federal acts and international agreements, which they are sworn to verify through due diligence, but implemented it regardless, leading to significant mental trauma and financial hardship being experienced by federal employees and delivering a significant blow to the Canadian national identity. This policy came into effect on October 6, 2021, and the deadline for acquiescence to its stipulations was October 29, 2021, which would place employees on unpaid leave in most situations on November 15, 2021. I have Métis heritage, and I find this medical apartheid horrific and I believed these sorts of things were sins of the past. It appears as if now the unvaccinated, or those who merely refuse to attest their status, have been added to the list of social undesirables by a government that continues to do the same thing to indigenous populations and has done for decades. Worse, they have somehow convinced Canadians that this is reasonable and that this is what it means to be Canadian. I wonder, which group will the government add to the pyre next? The precepts of inclusivity and integrity, as an integral part of the Canadian identity, are not supposed to be eroded as a matter of convenience when difficult situations arise. Otherwise, the eradication would always be invoked by the powerful. We remain united even when it's difficult and we cooperate. We don't expunge one group because we don't agree with their personal decisions, which is a matter of respect and appreciation for our common humanity. I was vaccinated prior to the implementation of this policy, but this was a personal choice that I made. All of these vaccines are still currently classified as experimental, and an approval from Health Canada, despite its verbiage, is an approval for it to be administered as an experimental product, not as a safe and effective vaccine. And this should never be confused. I should be able to volunteer to take an experimental product if I'd like. But I shouldn't be forced to take it as a condition of employment. The Pfizer vaccine in particular continues to be in a clinical trial until 2023. This means it isn't approved, technically, and this policy targets a particular population of Canadians to be forced to participate in a clinical trial. And the group in this instance are federal employees. Imagine if this group were different and instead we forced only indigenous people, or immigrants, or the poor to be forced to participate in a clinical trial and no one else. How would Canadians perceive such a policy then? Is this where we're at now? Forcing one portion of the population to engage in medical trials and threaten their jobs if they refuse to be a guinea pig for the alleged benefit of the remaining population? This is literally what is happening. For your perusal and further investigation, 
I submit the following acts and agreements that either supersede this COVID policy or have sections that conflict with its core tenets. The Canadian National Report on Immunization, page 3, which states vaccinations cannot be made mandatory in Canada due to our Constitution. The Canadian Bill of Rights, section 1, that states fundamental freedoms are guaranteed except by due process of law. This policy is not a law, nor was it subject to an approval process consistent with due diligence. The Treasury Board Collective Agreement, which is my agreement, there is no provision for any employee to be forced to be on leave without pay by the employer, and this is further informed by case law. The Statutory Instruments Act, paragraph 32C, which states that the clerk of the Privy Council will ensure that regulations are consistent with law. This policy is inconsistent with law, numerous ones may I add. The Financial Administration Act, which outlines within the Act itself that it isn't permitted to limit fundamental freedoms. The reason why I mention that one for un people uh, unaware um, is that this is the act that's very frequently invoked by uh, many federal agencies as being the mechanism through which um, policy decisions are made and then enforceable because they claim the act permits them to do it. Uh, but if they had read the act a little bit more in depth instead of just the section that they wanted to cherry pick, um, they would see that actually there are uh, portions of the act that claim that anything in here cannot actually limit fundamental freedoms. Continuing on, the Canada Labour Code, Part 2 and 3, which says that leave without pay can only be requested by the employee, which is also further informed by case law. And then we have Privacy Act, Section 4. No personal information shall be collected by a government institution unless it relates directly to an operating program or activity of the institution. My agency has no such program, nor does it make a habit of collecting personal medical information of this nature. As a result, this policy wouldn't qualify as being a legitimate mechanism to collect such information. Another quick aside, I know that when it comes to privacy rights, people often invoke Section 7 or Section 8 when it comes to this collection of information. Uh, I don't think those are as appropriate as Section 4 uh, for the purposes of raising an argument in um, keeping your medical information private in this circumstance. In other ones, 7 or 8 might be better. So finishing off here, we have the Nuremberg Code. This policy contravenes every rule of this code. The Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights, which states all treatment requires voluntary consent. And then we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which outlines discrimination-free treatment of humans. I have more, but I've reached the character limit, and if you'd like clarification on anything, I am prepared to assist. Thank you. End quote. So, for those unfamiliar, those last three, uh, those are international agreements, uh, of which Canada is a participant. So they have stated they intend on following them. Now, their response was as follows. I will have both of them uh, up, both pages of it, uh, so that you can peruse them uh, at your own uh, leisure. And, uh, you know, you can always uh, freeze or pause the video if you'd like to look at them. But I will read um, just one portion of the second page, which more or less um, informs us of their decision they've made, which is uh, paragraph 24 1E of the Act, uh, 
provides that I may refuse to deal with a disclosure or to commence an investigation if I'm of the opinion that the subject matter of the disclosure or the investigation relates to a matter that results from a balanced and informed decision-making process on a public policy issue. As the subject matter of your disclosure concerns a Treasury Board Secretariat policy that was implemented at the direction of elected officials, I have decided to exercise my discretion not to investigate these allegations pursuant to paragraph 241E of the Act. Consequently, your file will be closed. And it just has a little sentence or two at the end that states, I do wish to thank you for taking the time to bring these concerns to my office. Should you have any questions about my decision, please do not hesitate to contact um, us. And it, it gives a name and number for the case admissibility analyst. So with respect to my submission and their response, uh, the section they reference does indeed permit their office to exercise discretion in which disclosures to investigate. Uh, and this is a normal part of many acts of parliament. Uh, that being said, my concern isn't their refusal to investigate in this instance. Rather, it is their rationale that they provided to support the invocation of this particular paragraph. It seems shaky and incoherent, and I wanted some clarification. My original submission, for those that are unaware, took place in mid-December 2021, and their response was dated January 7th, 2022. So about a month later, uh, or even less, which is actually pretty good. Um, after I received their response, I contacted their office seven times over the course of the following month, at their request, to ask follow-up questions regarding this decision. I contacted my case analyst four times and left two voicemails, and I called their general office line three times and left two voicemails. All of them contained my contact information, and it is now March 19th that I am recording this, and I have yet to hear back from them. I would like to share the questions and comments that I wanted to direct to the Office of the Public Sector Integrity Commissioner with respect to this decision. The basis for my report of wrongdoing was that this policy specifically and explicitly did not result from a balanced and informed decision-making process. Seeing as I provided allegations and corroborating acts of parliament that sought to make this clear, can you please elaborate on the ways in which you could have reached this conclusion in the face of what I've provided? Essentially, the fundamental nature of my complaint pertained precisely to the reason you're using to refuse to investigate the matter. I believed that irony was dead, uh, but it is currently on display from this office. Next, am I to interpret the justification for your refusal to mean that if any policy is implemented at the direction of an elected official, that this would by definition imply its legitimacy, despite any conflicts or challenges it may contain with existing acts of parliament? And if not, can you please elaborate on why the case was closed using this rationale? You can see how terrible this rationale is. In their own words, if we elect a representative, apparently, they can do whatever they would like, regardless of its legality or ethos, and this office has got their back. This, apparently, is what it means to preserve integrity and trust in the federal public sector. And finally, 
If your office isn't interested in pursuing matters of this nature, can you please recommend how a citizen and taxpayer can combat a policy that appears obviously illegal? Would this imply litigation, and if so, could you, in any way, be found liable for failing to address, even by simply initiating an investigation, regarding something of such significance and national importance? I would love it if you could respond to me sometime and answer my questions. I don't know. Uh, I doubt this video will ever uh, cross the path of anyone that works in that office, but I'd like an answer sometime to those questions. Well, what do you think, everyone? Um, is this an indication of corruption? Or is it merely bureaucratic negligence? Is it disguised partisanship? Or am I completely wrong and my submission isn't valid and they were right to refuse to investigate? But even then, should I not at least be given the opportunity and respect that we purport to reserve for a citizen and taxpayer in asking a few questions as a follow-up? I mean, they asked me to do that. They invited me to do that, but they seem to be unwilling to meet that invitation. I wanted to leave you with something to consider, and it pertains to rights and freedoms. I've watched and read a great deal of material pertaining to the landscape of governance in Canada, and there seems to be a common frustration that some people might be confusing with a realization that in Canada, our rights aren't really rights. They seem to be privileges, at least according to the government. The comments echo a relatively straightforward question, which is, what is the point of a constitution and a charter guaranteeing rights and freedoms if they can be taken away so easily? It's a pretty good question. I understand this view, and I sympathize completely. However, my view is that this isn't the case. Constitutional rights and freedoms are extremely difficult to take away from citizens, even with the limiting clause of Section 1 of the Charter, which does state, The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Notice the word law in this section. To reiterate, as I have many times before in other videos, a policy is not a law. I'll say it a few more times and maybe it will sink in so that maybe we can all start to acknowledge the difference between these two. A policy is not a law. A policy is not a law. A policy is not a law. In law, words matter. I know this. Lawyers know this. And the judiciary knows this. The word law would not have been used in this section if any policy that did not bear the weight of a law could be used to limit our freedoms. The executive branch, that is, the prime minister and the cabinet, don't care about the meaning of words because they're politicians. Words mean whatever they would like them to mean, except for when they don't. The government would like to convince you that law means any document issued by the executive branch, but this isn't the case, and our ignorance of Canadian law will be our undoing. That is, if our cowardice isn't enough on its own. The Prime Minister or any other representative will certainly try to convince you that your rights can be taken away, even though it is unlikely that the judiciary would approve, but 
That's just the point. Politicians and policymakers do not collaborate with constitutional judges to determine the legality or legitimacy of a, of a proposed program or policy. As a result, it is up to you and I to disagree with and abstain from following policies that you believe violate existing laws, even when you may not be subject to them. A lot of people don't like this, however, because that would mean that you would have to run the risk of being targeted by your employer, the police, or the government, because most people are cowards. You simply won't get the support of others in combating illegal policies. Then there are those who believe that politicians wouldn't implement a policy if they knew they couldn't by law. And to you, well, I'm not sure I can think of anything to say that would adequately characterize your ignorance and naivete without being insulting, and those two words alone might be sufficient. So I'll just say, they do it all the time. And you should familiarize yourself with such things if you hope to have any chance in avoiding being victimized by your government in the future. Democracies function through participation. And the only thing that stops a bureaucrat from breaking the law is you and I. Because when the government watchdogs, auditors, and offices of integrity have become captured or have been rendered ineffective, you are the last thing that you can depend upon to stave off the ever-grasping human hand of political overreach. By the time the judiciary gets their hands on the matter, the executive branch will already have gotten away with it. And we will feel stupid and betrayed. And we may deserve that. It is up to us to participate in our democracy, understand our laws, and hold our institutions accountable in court. Like most things with respect to human existence, short-term laziness and fear will produce long-term pain and suffering. And these are the sorts of issues with which we cannot and should not remain silent and stationary. All right, that's all I have to say for now. Hang in there, everyone. Do the best you can. Some mandates are slowly easing. Go outside and hug one of your fellow citizens or residents. What we need are for people to reacclimate themselves to one another and to the extremely important and necessary features of human existence like contact and witnessing one another's smiling faces. Take care of yourself and one another. See ya.